This is Studio A from Interlochen Public Radio. Today, we welcome Jung Ho Pak to our studio here at Classical IPR. He's conducting the World Youth Symphony Orchestra this week and on Sunday at the final performance of Interlochen's summer camp season. It's wonderful to have you here at Interlochen and at Classical IPR. It's my pleasure. Thank you. How would you describe the differences and similarities in conducting professional ensembles <laughs> and younger musicians in a student ensemble? Boy, I, I think that question, it depends on when you asked me. When I was in my 20s, um, I would have said a huge difference. I would have said that students don't necessarily have all of the life experience. They don't have the technique. They don't have the understanding of what it is to play in an orchestra. And then when you work with professionals, they don't necessarily have the same kind of innocence and the same kind of um, wide-eyed optimism. That, that, that. But now I, I learned early on that that's not true, that young people can play with incredible sophistication if they're expected to do so, and that, that professional musicians are all 16 years old, 17 years old in their hearts, and it is my role, if not my job, to actually make them believe again and to invite them. That means treating them with tremendous respect and that same kind of Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland kind of, of let's put on a show type of of uh, enthusiasm. So now that I can say it many, 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 many years later, that for me, I try to treat the students with the same level of professionalism while still waking them up to what it means to be a professional, because it is a completely different world when you're actually being paid and expected to perform at a high level. So just giving them that sense of, you know, you come to the rehearsals prepared, you don't learn the music in rehearsal, you, you, you play with consistency and accuracy. But when I work with professional musicians, you know, I, I, I treat them as if we're all playing in the same sandbox. That's that, and I that way I'm I'm less schizophrenic when I when I'm working with both sides, it's they're just all great human beings. This kind of came up in what you just said. Yeah. But what do you want students to consider as some of them are preparing to decide on whether to pursue music at the next level, whether it's college, and possibly a professional career after that. Well, that is a conversation that I think every student should have. I've had the honor of serving on wonderful conservatories I've, at USC in Southern California and San Francisco Conservatory, and even here at Interlochen. That conversation, the talk about what the realities of how many jobs are available, what does it take to win a job, what does it take to keep a job, and the biggest question of all is what does it take to be happy? It is not a foregone conclusion that after you win a job, even with a major orchestra, you know, that happiness is and joy and bliss and satisfaction is automatically given. And so I think that's part of the discussion that we that I try to have with the students that um, when, when I do have time is that you have to ask yourself now before you go down too far the path is why are you a musician? Are you a musician because you don't like math or you don't like social studies or you don't like science? 
Are you a musician because your parents want you to do it? Your teachers expect you to do it? Are you a musician because you're good at it? Now, that you would think, okay, well, that's the reason. No, not necessarily. Just because you have a certain acumen or a facility to play an instrument well doesn't mean that it's going to make you happy. I know a lot of musicians who studied very assiduously and then became business people, lawyers, gardeners, and they, they still play and they still love it. Who's to say that that isn't the ideal situation? So we try to have a kind of an existential awareness. When you come to Interlochen and you're in front of the orchestra, has a student ever approached you about looking even further ahead and asked you about becoming a conductor and what that path is like? Yes. Um, I get a good percentage of people. And, <laughs> and if you were just to look passively um, observing a conductor. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you're waving your arms, you're getting exercise, <laughs> you're telling people what to do. You get to imagine how the music goes and, and, and imprint it on other people. There's so many things. It's a very rarefied supervisorial role uh, that's very emotional at the same time. And so there's something very seductive about wanting to be a conductor. I get it. And I fell into that trap too. But I think if, if you're a good boss or even a good parent, you realize that you get the most out of people when it's not about you, when it's truly either about the work that we're doing or about the people you're serving. I just spent two glorious hours with these young musicians this morning and trying to cajole them and convince them that who they are is who they should bring to the concert stage or to the rehearsal as well. That sometimes, you know, it's funny, you have a break at the rehearsal after an hour, and then they're going out there yelling, yelling and running and, and laughing and hugging and being alive. And I said, why don't you bring that here when you're playing? So um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I, I think as a conductor that your role is to make everyone's lives around you better, not to feed your own ego. That's one of the things that I, I try to, to tell them is that it's not about control, but it's about... Um, making the world a better place. The concert repertoire for sure. this week. Mm -hmm. Sergei Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Uh -huh. For those performing it and for those listening to it, what are the <laughs> things about that piece? Oh, this is a young person's piece to be literally and artistically. It is about two very, very young star-crossed lovers. And uh, I, I just was reminded by the orchestra, I said, you know, how old is Juliet anyway? And she's 13 years old. You know, of course, today it'd be very problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if you just look at it from a, a very conceptual point of view, it's about young people and the idealism and their belief uh, that they, they follow their heart. And so I've always enjoyed doing this piece with youth orchestras because I can tell them you know, imagine what it's like to be in love for the first time. Imagine what it's like to be challenged with your parents and to be passionately thrown into something. This is this is the time for them to understand that and to believe it and rebellion and and um, and just believing in yourself. So there's something that I get from working with a youth orchestra that um, it's just a little bit more believable. Uh, imagine, you know, when I work with a professional orchestra, their ages are usually between the ages of, let's say, 26 and 70, let's mm -hmm. say. But 
it's hard to imagine a 13-year-old Juliet running around the stage with that. But you can. But when you look at a flute player who's 15, 16 years old, 14 years old, then it's quite quite plausible. Then the ballet music. This is perhaps, I, I would possibly argue, Prokofiev's greatest ballet. This is where he really shines. Yes, we love his symphonies, symphony number one and number five, and, you know, uh, he's, his concerti. All of his music is brilliant, but truly he shines when he's telling a story. Peter and the Wolf is a great example. It's, it's, not, it's not a great children's piece. It's a great piece of music, period. But his ballets, and the same thing with Tchaikovsky as well, is where his, his sentimentality falls, where his imagination, um, he's a storyteller. And so that is what I would really ask people when they come and hear this beautiful piece of music is sit back and you're basic he basically hearing a John Williams score come alive. You know how John Williams music is so incredibly satisfying. You don't need to have Harry Potter or, or Luke Skywalker in front of you. It is complete. It is a satisfying meal. It has all the nutritional elements. The same thing with his ballet music. There's nothing missing. It's equal to Stravinsky's Firebird and Rite of Spring. So when, when we're rehearsing this and the musicians are playing it and audiences involved, we're just taking on the same ride. Now I can hardly wait even more. I, I can't either. <laughs> and uh, creation by Tanya Windsinger. Yes, yeah. It, this may seem like an interesting pairing. Uh, when I have done Native American music, and I've actually done quite a bit, What's really important to me is, is, is that the composer is Native American. And in this case, uh, she, Tanya Winsinger, is based in Phoenix and has had quite an, an awakening, incredibly uh, virtuosic, masterful composer. She writes music with an understanding of all of the beauty of Debussy and the harmonic and rhythmic uh, mastery of all the great classical composers. And, and, and I proudly say that because this is not um, tokenism. This is not con convenience. This is choosing a composer who is just brilliant. Also happens to be transgender as identified that way. So I, 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 this is a voice that needs to be on stage as an artist and as a person in our society, I couldn't I, I couldn't believe in this piece more. And it's called The Creation, and I just had a wonderful conversation with her yesterday about the, the meaning of the piece. Native Americans certainly don't have the same perspective, at least according to Tanya, of, of kind of a biblical, you know, God created the earth in seven days and all of this uh, from nothingness to everythingness. But rather, it is an acknowledgement of everything that exists in the world. And um, it is a closer, more real relationship rather than one that is um, that seems almost mythical or unimaginable in in our Western way of thinking. And it is more of a celebration and an acknowledgement of the world around us. And so it it, it completely illuminated the piece for me. Um, I think when people hear it, they will hear things like similar to a natural Native American flute. Um, and or you know a powwow, the rhythmic energy, the songs that they sing, it all comes alive. But it's it it, it will speak to a Western ear um, in a way that I when I was listening to S South American classical composers, uh, people like Silvestre Revueltas, 
or Chavez, you know, these very famous names. I have not had that same connection with, with Native Americans who lived in North America. It was introduced to us as musicians through Mexico and South America, um, which is wonderful. But I didn't have that same kind of pride. Now I have this. I want to trumpet it from the top of the mountains that composers, many composers, more than one, many, many North American, Native American composers need to be on our concert stage. We need to find them. We need to celebrate them. The concert's second half, mm-hmm. Le Prelude by Franz Liszt, not only the World Youth Symphony Orchestra, but an expanded ensemble of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. What challenges does this scenario present <laughs> for you and for the student musicians? Well, just from a purely logistical uh, humanity, humanity on stage point of view, uh, it's a cast of hundreds, which is... Uh, something that you know many conductors don't have to deal with most of the time. Usually, my ensemble is somewhere between, let's say, 50 and 80 musicians on stage. But here, when you combine two orchestras, the Interlochen Philharmonic, along with the World Youth Symphony Orchestra, along with the World Youth Wind Symphony, I believe, that's joining us as well, all fabulous ensembles, um, you have three different th- people who have taken three different journeys over six weeks. All of them had different conductors and different concerts and different repertoire. And now we come together at the last moment of the sixth week and putting them together. From a conductor's point of view, the edges of the orchestra are not maybe 30 feet away. The edges of the orchestra are 60 feet away. So when I give a downbeat, people are looking through their telescopes at the conductor because I'm very, very small in front of them. Plus, they have to listen across a huge expanse uh, inside what we call the bowl, the interlocking bowl, which is this beautiful A-frame um, structure. And so there's that just physicality of Samson bringing the columns together and just trying to keep everyone together and, and listening. And I had my first rehearsal yesterday, and I was just amazed on how gracious they were because also this is week six. There's a lot of hormones, a lot of energy and yayas that people want to get out, but everyone was quiet and listening and very respectful and focused, which is just, a, 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 they honor me with their, with their attention. Then musically, it is very difficult. It's like trying to drive an obstacle course for a, a sports car with a Mack truck. You're basically going around these cones and everything is, the truck moves very slowly and very laboriously. But these guys are listening and being very, very responsive. And that is, that is what it's like for me. Instead of driving a little speedboat, it is the Queen Mary. Jung Ho Pak, thank you so much. It is just going to be a thrill to experience the Le Prelude concert with you on the podium once again. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us at IPR and for sharing your insights and your passion about art and people and music. It is completely in my honor, and it's one of the reasons why I come back to Interlochen every year, is that this is where you can actually believe in the future of beautiful music and our humanity. This Sunday, August 6th, you can hear the final concert of the Interlochen Arts Camp season on Interlochen Public Radio. The concert's at 7.30 p.m., and we'll bring it to you live on the radio or online at classicalipr.org or use the IPR app or listen on your smart speaker. This is Studio A. I'm Nancy Deneen. 
Thanks for listening. Studio A is a production of Interlochen Public Radio, part of Interlochen Center for the Arts. Learn more at interlochenpublicradio.org.